Hello and welcome to the next episode of our Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm Lucinda Johnson, Investment Manager at Tilney's Birmingham office, and I'm talking with our Chief Investment Strategist, Ben Seeger-Scott, about our latest investment insights during a time of political turmoil. Before we begin, here is some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or a recommendation, and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carrying varying levels of risk depending on their geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. Hi, Ben. Nice to see you. Hello. Hi. So let's kick off, shall we? We've had a, a fairly eventful start to 2019. Um, it's only the end of January and uh, quite a lot has happened on the political front. Probably best to kick off with what's what's been going on and, and what impacts that has, has had on markets. Well, exactly. Lots going on. I think one of the themes we did see through January is a little bit of markets actually settling down. Back end of last year, lots of fear, negative sentiment, and this is what we talked about last month. Actually, now that everyone's back at their desks, market participants are back. Volatility is a little bit more subdued, and we're seeing flows pick up. And I think that is what you do tend to see at the start of most years when trading is very thin, markets can be volatile, not very many people involved can move the markets around a lot. Actually, the year has started with some relative stabilisation. Of course, mixed in with that, there's been quite a lot of news flow. Usefully, I think from an investment point of view, uh, January sees the kicking off of earnings season, earnings being company fundamentals, and that gives equity markets something a bit more meaty uh, to dig their teeth into. What you sometimes get, particularly with politics and geopolitical events, in the absence of, of earnings guidance, markets tend to get a little bit more jittery. Of course, lots of economic data have come out that are a little bit less than positive. We're still seeing the economic malaise across Europe, Europe really struggling to achieve or reachieve escape velocity, and also China confirming its ongoing slowdown. So the latest GDP figures we had for Q4 showed there was a slowdown from 6.5 to 6.4. Now that was expected, but it is this broader theme we've talked about before. That's great. I mean, lots of things that obviously dominate the UK headlines at the moment is is Brexit. There's no escaping it, whichever way you turn. And and one of the things that I frequently get asked is, you know, how much does the political turmoil here and, you know, recently this month in the US, you know, Donald Trump has had the longest government shutdown in history, which he's only just called a halt to. What sort of impact are those events actually having on, on markets as opposed to just dominating our headlines? Absolutely. Um, it's worth, as always, I'm sure people would be bored of me saying it after too long, but we're always try to be apolitical as a house. So we don't take views one way or the other. What we do is look at how market participants are likely to react what the response is likely to be. And nine times out of 10, actually what happens in politics gets a lot of news flow. It doesn't tend to have much of a fundamental significant impact. There are some nuances within that, of course. Every so often you do get surprises. And when we look at fundamentals, governments can have a relatively small impact, but an impact nonetheless. If you have good businesses, ultimately earnings will grow from their good ideas and good productive activity. But of course, there's also monetary policy to consider and from a government point of view, fiscal. And I think whenever there are 
political headlines, very often the question is, what sort of fiscal impact is that likely to have? Um, more often than not, com- uh, governments won't have a major impact. Historically, most governments have tended to cluster around the centre, and we haven't had these very significant changes. But sometimes they can have an impact either through fiscal policy. Uh, I think you're seeing that a lot at the moment. When you have populist governments, they tend to be drawn to turning on the fiscal taps, keeping people happy in the short term, and that has a longer term impact. Counterintuitively, even though we do think that that excessive deficits are bad in the long term, what you can see is a lot of that having a good initial impact before then starting to cause problems as governments have have more borrowing and, and higher deficits. But I think really when it comes to, to politics, we ask ourselves sort of really two key questions. Does it change the fundamentals? So the fiscal policy we talked about and what's the impact on sentiment? Sentiment tends to be a lot more short term. People get shocked, markets potentially fall. Sometimes that can be an entry opportunity, an opportunity to rebalance and put more money to work. The flip side, and here's where it gets a little bit more grey, sentiment in and of itself is quite fickle and generally short term. The problem is you can then have a feedback from sentiment into fundamentals. Because I think, as everyone will experience, if you do see some shocking headlines, you get a little bit worried. Maybe you start to worry about job security, about uh, your income. And at that point, perhaps that has an impact on the fundamentals. So that's really when we talk about the risk of negative sentiment becoming entrenched. That's when it goes from being I'm a bit worried everything's okay to actually maybe I won't go out and spend, maybe I'll save. And that can bring the economies uh, slowing down a little bit. That's great. And obviously that that dwells on the politics of the sort of the here and now. But obviously once Brexit is resolved one way or another, we may have a change in government in the UK. There is a 2020 uh, presidential election in the US. How is potentially the the changing shape, the future of politics, should it be uh, a change in in government here or, or in the US may play a part on that? that sentiment you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. When you have governments changing, one of the first things we do as investors, and you know, frankly, everyone in the industry will be doing the same, it's look past the rhetoric, look past what's being briefed to, to different newspapers. And instead, we look at what's their manifesto, what are they likely to deliver on? First and foremost, that is probably going to be looking at any changes to elements such as corporate taxation, so that has a direct impact on earnings, Personal taxation as well, is this likely to change uh, consumer sentiment and consumer activity? How much debt is likely to, to be added on top? As I said, normally not we don't tend to see very significant changes, but sometimes when you have populist governments, those aspects do come in. You mentioned that the 2020 election, the next time the US gets to choose its president, there are some, there is some evidence that you have these phenomena around presidential elections. Obviously, if you want to get elected, you want people to be positively predisposed. So sometimes governments, particularly in the US, when they have the, these cycles, will do everything they can to engineer a sort of goodwill feeling, uh, which tends to mean delaying any, any negative impacts. Potentially, in what we may see, President Trump has been very vocal about more tax reform to personal taxation. Obviously, now the Democrats control half of Congress, that's a little bit harder. But I also think if you're a Democrat, it's going to be very unpopular later this year or next year. The president and the Republicans suggest, let's give some people more money, let's cut their cut their tax burden. It's going to be very difficult for Democrats going into an election to be seen publicly to say, no, 
tax people more. So in the short term, those are elements that you can factor in. And when you do have these big events, governments do tend to like people a little bit happier. So that can give a, a bit of a short term boost. But then again, it's not broadly positive. It's about redistribution. So arguably, that's taking some potential growth from the future and bringing it forward. So all of that does need to factor into our thinking. I suppose that, that sort of slightly leads neatly on as you've sort of chatted about, about the US, you know, one of the, the things I think you discussed last week, uh, last month even, that you were looking at the major causes of the volatility last year was sort of the US and, and China trade wars. Um, something that's not got as many press headlines here as, as Brexit, but something that I think we as, as investment professionals are sort of keen to, to keep an eye on. Do you want to sort of touch on how that might have developed this this sort of this month and, and going forward this year? Uh, the US government shutdown? Uh, no, sorry, the China trade wars. Oh, China trade wars. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, ultimately, not a huge amount has happened with the, the US and China. There's been lots of rhetoric. If anything, it's quite notable the lack of a coherent message. I think the most you can hope for from these negotiations is when both sides and all elements of both sides are saying something similar. I think nothing has fundamentally changed from Q4. Both sides, given the volatility, the weaknesses in the markets, both sides have developed the sense of maybe now a deal does need to be done. It's always been, I think, a negotiation. But before Q4, maybe, China looked a little bit more on the ropes. Its economy was slowing down. Its stock markets were coming under pressure. At the same time, US had very strong growth and strong markets. I think now both are coming to the realisation, and again, it's a theme we've talked about for, for 12 months or more, so it's not a surprise to us, but both are coming around to the idea that a trade war is a war of attrition. Obviously, with all of the other politics, Donald Trump does need some sort of win. We, we did mention the government shutdown. The polls have suggested a lot of Americans are blaming Donald Trump rather than the Democrats for this. So I think there's some pressure uh, on President Trump to engineer some sort of win. And that could give a sort of short-term boost. But that is not going to change the longer, longer strategic challenges. I think the US and China are going to wrestle for a long time with the fact that they are both economic rivals, but key trade partners. And in the last month or so, or last few weeks, there's been a lot of evidence to reinforce that. And I think the theme of 2018 was big rivalry, the US trying to get one over on China. Actually, if you look at some of the reports more recently, Apple gave a profit warning again on the back of slower than expected iPhone sales uh, in the U uh, in China. We look close to home in the UK, Jaguar Land Rover is having to now lay off, has announced they're going to lay off thousands of workers. One of the key reasons for that is a slowdown of growth in China. In the last week or so, we've seen chip makers, even Caterpillar, 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 sorry, produces very large machinery. China is a key market. They've also reported an impact on their earnings from a slowdown. So it's reminding us that the, the economy is global in nature. And now we're seeing some of these impacts in terms of US and UK companies. I think that might also spur someone on to, to do a deal. Yeah, and I guess, you know, whatever your thoughts on Donald Trump was, one of the things he had going for him prior to, to last year was his, his actually boost of the American economy. Now, how much of that was, was down to him and his uh, his sort of party politics and how much was down to just general growth. Unless he gets back on track slightly, I think he's probably fighting an uphill battle that he doesn't want to fight going into, into 2020. Yeah, abs absolutely. And, and I think he's now realising just how interdependent 
the global economy is. And we talked about the strategic issues, elements such as forced technology transfer. Yes, that's going to continue going on. Huawei and how involved they're going to be in 5G. Obviously, the US is now using a lot more of the soft power that arguably it should have been using throughout. But rather than slapping tariffs, it's about convincing your allies not to allow China and Huawei to be involved in developing the next round of communications. And China has big ambitions. It's, I think it's going to be less about trade tariffs. It's going to be more, how do we deal with the Made in China 2025 policy, the Belt and Road Initiative, and those more broad strategic responses. But they will require a lot more nuanced tools than the, the fairly blunt instrument of trade tariffs used uh, as an excuse for from uh, national security grounds, which is a little bit too blunt for this. Sort of looking a little bit closer to home now, um, obviously, we look at the economic impacts in our press of, of, of Brexit, but what we tend to sort of forget in the, in the, in the crossfire is, is what might happen in, in the Eurozone. And, you know, not only have they got Brexit to deal with, but they've also got their own political issues brewing. Um, any thoughts on, on what 2019 has in store for, for the Eurozone and, and the countries? Yes, I do. At the Eurozone, we, we've been very positive the last couple of years on the Eurozone, particularly from 2016 and 2017. The Eurozone was relatively slow to achieve its economic recovery. It lagged behind the UK and the US. It's had some good growth, but now it has a lot more challenges, both economically and politically. And politically, we're seeing the rise of populist, populist leaders across uh, across Europe and the challenges that brings, particularly around immigration and various social issues, that in turn has weakened uh, Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, who's now had to step down as party leader. A lot of that in response to her handling of, of the, the migrant crises in, in Europe. Fortunately, there's some stability there. There was a change of party leadership. There were some outside contenders who could potentially have pushed Angela Merkel out. As it turns out, uh, now the party leader is Angret Kramp-Karrenbauer, who is the, the perceived heir apparent for Angela Merkel, very much a, a party person and unlikely to push Angela Merkel out before her term of chancellor is up. So that provides a little bit more stability. But problems are across Europe, obviously here in the UK, we're focused on Brexit. The Eurozone does have, and the EU does have some focus on that, but they have challenges particularly with Italy uh, and the, the away from centre party, I guess you could, could argue is, is running Italy now. The budget negotiations, how wide a deficit to run. A lot of problems across the continent. And it's not just political, it's economic. For a long time, and, and I really do not want to get into the EU referendum debate uh, and whether or not the Eurozone is a good idea, but I think you can economically see the challenges you have if you have monetary union, so using the same currency and the same interest rates across the block, but fiscal disunion, so fiscal policy controlled by regional governments. And what we're now seeing, Europe is becoming a bit of a two-speed economy. You have Northern Europe, particularly the likes of Germany and to some extent France. Their economies are, are doing very well, particularly the large exporters benefiting from the weak currency, starting to see signs of inflation coming through. And if it were just, say, Germany in, in the Eurozone, then interest rates would be a lot higher to try and control that inflation. But against that, in the Eurozone, you have the Southern European countries, Italy, Spain and Portugal, Greece, of course. If you increase interest rates while they have a fragile economy, very high unemployment, not particularly productive economies at this stage, 
higher interest rates can do real damage there. So it's difficult to see how the eurozone can achieve a single monetary policy when you have these very disparate economies. It's probably going to need some fairly innovative thinking from the ECB. And that's something I'd expect to see develop through this year. So a lot of challenges, not just Brexit, um, but obviously there are interesting Brexit developments that we've had in the last month alone. But Europe itself has other concerns too. Yeah, I think it's easy to forget with our with new headlines coming through that you know the eurozone crisis wasn't that long ago, and and countries like Greece and Spain and Italy have massive issues to deal with that that although they've started to address, it's um, still a bit of an uphill battle for them. And and just because they're not in the headlines doesn't mean they're they're not there anymore. Obviously, last year saw saw quite a lot of volatility off the back of many of the things we we've already discussed. One of the things that clients sort of look to me for, for an answer to is the last time they saw this level of volatility was, was 2008. We've had fairly stable markets and, and upward trajectories since then. We as investment professionals sort of try and, and, and suggest that this isn't another 2008 scenario and that, that there are differences between it, but clients can't help but draw a parallel. Is there anything that you would say to sort of dispel that, that sort of view that, that we're heading into another sort of global recession? Ah, well, hopefully this, this section won't get edited out because I, I can't give you the carte blanche, everything is going to be okay guarantee that I think uh, everyone would like. But there are some important points to highlight. Firstly, this isn't 2008. We don't have anywhere near the level of interest rates that we had in 2008. Going into that crisis, interest rates, for example, in the US, the, the global economy were above 5%. Now they're, they're uh, just about half that level. So interest rates are relatively soft. And what kills off most economic cycles is the Fed hiking interest rates, trying to aggressively cool the economy. And we could not be further from that at the moment. If you listen to central banks across the world, increasingly more dovish, the prospect of interest rate hikes this year has diminished very significantly, very unlikely to get any meaningful hikes. And if anything, the market is now pricing in no hikes this year and then cuts over the next year or so. So very different environment. The Fed is not talking about restrictive interest rates. And that's what what you had going into 2008 and elsewhere. Also, if you look at companies, companies are cash rich. They have very strong earnings growth. We don't have the level of quite extreme leverage that we had going into 2008. Obviously, companies and households are starting to lever back up, but not quite at as extreme levels as we saw back then. And there is less financial engineering. That was one of the causes of the global financial crisis, collateralized debt obligations, all of these very um, esoteric constructs that caused a breakdown in trust. There's much greater focus on those. There's much greater control on what banks and investment banks can do. So all of those fragilities in the system have arguably been resolved. That is not to say there aren't risks out there. Of course, we've fixed one level of financial engineering. It is unknowable whether there are other elements out there. And certainly, there are many elements of of the current cycle that may seem slightly late stage. But I think really, if I were to talk to an investor right now, obviously a lot are listening, I think there's several different factors to bear in mind. First and foremost, recessions are not as bad as most people think. They are a natural part of the cycle. I think it would help for us to get away from this psychological idea that all recessions are like the global financial crisis. Financial crises are painful. They're deep, dark recessions. Most recessions are shallow and mild. They recycle capital from non-productive uses into economically useful and productive assets. They are part 
of the natural economic cycle. And actually, if you have a properly balanced portfolio, all of the portfolios that we run, once you've accumulated or addressed your, your certain risk appetite and risk profile, they are ultimately designed with the idea that recessions can and do happen. It's why you need to invest for the long term. Part of the return you get from investing and taking these risks, uh, part of that is payoff for taking the, the risk in the short term. There may be mild recessions and bearing these fluctuations out. But over the long term, uh, equities in particular have very strong returns. Other parts of the portfolio also generate returns, and they are all embedded in the return assumptions for our portfolios. So there is an assumption if you're investing for 10 or 20 years, yes, during that period, there will be some level of recession, most likely. Um, That is factored into the return assumptions, and that's a natural part of investing. And if anything, I think you've got to look back to last year, and I think we talked about it last month, equity markets have already fallen quite significantly from their peaks. And that is in part reflecting the potential challenges going forward. That's great. And and it leads nicely into sort of my, my next question that, that lots of clients address is, although we discuss equities an awful lot because they're the most volatile and, and they're the thing that hits our headlines, we do have other asset classes in our portfolio. And I wondered if you could give us a sort of brief outlook on some of those things like commercial property, absolute return funds, um, gold, all of which we, we hold in the majority of our portfolios and, and you know, are less discussed in terms of our, our sort of outlook for them. Yes, we do. And I think that does lead on from the, the point I was just making. If you have a balanced portfolio, The higher risk you are, the more equity component you will naturally have. And all of that is done on a weighted probability based on our our outlook. But as you go down the risk scale, typically a portfolio would then look to add lower risk assets. Typically, that is either fixed income assets or, as you mentioned, alternative assets. And their role, arguably in the portfolio, is to bring down the overall risk we look for assets that are less correlated. So we want assets that when equities fall, they're more likely to not be falling and hopefully rising. And that's really what both the fixed income and alternatives elements of portfolios are, are there for. I think as we've talked about before, the outlook for fixed income is relatively unattractive. So that does make us a little bit more positive on those alternative asset classes. And from our point of view, alternative asset classes still need to pull their own weight Uh, and they are there to to diversify, we do look for them to be, in aggregate, a lower risk, lower return part of the portfolio. I know some alternative asset classes can be riskier. We're not looking for for speculative investments in this part of the portfolio. They're there for for sort of lower risk and lower return. And really, as you mentioned, those three different sub-asset classes, commercial property, absolute return, uh, and gold. I think when we look through these, each of them has very distinct characteristics uh, alternative strategies, unlike equities and bonds, equities and bonds have a lot of similar characteristics uh, across the subclasses. Everything in alternatives, as the name suggests, is quite distinct. Starting with commercial property, obviously, typically bricks and mortar, actual buildings that you can go away, you can buy, you can look at. They tend to be very liquid. Uh, they cost a lot to buy and sell. Uh, one of the ac- the routes we get to access those are through bricks and mortar funds. Those have come under a lot of pressure from a news point of view, not in investment terms necessarily. We saw in the wake of the EU referendum in 2016 that a lot of these funds had to close to investors. Investors couldn't get their money out or put money in. And that caused a little bit of a shock. But actually, if you look, they were closed for a few months. When they reopened, they hadn't actually lost 
all that much money. In fact, most of their values have got back to where they started before they closed. But I think that's important for the asset class. Property tends to be lowly correlated with equities. It still churns out a pretty decent yield. Um, obviously, fees will have an impact. The underlying asset class yields between 4 and 5%, which is actually pretty attractive as, as an income yield. One thing you do need to bear in mind as an investor, though, they are illiquid assets. Uh, if you're a long-term investor, buy and hold these assets. I think they will do a pretty good job for you. If you may need that money out in the next year or so and couldn't handle any period of gating, then as with any investment, you shouldn't really be invested in, in risky assets short-term or potentially illiquid assets. But part of the return you get, I mean, we talk a lot about risk and return. Part of the return you get is compensating for that illiquidity risk. So that's a risk you're being compensated for. Uh, Also on commercial property, I think a lot of investors I talk to say, oh, but what about the high street? We see uh, retail getting in significant trouble. And that's certainly true. A lot of retailers are struggling. You're seeing a lot of CVAs, which are basically voluntary agreements to attempt to, to reduce the rent. And obviously that's not great for the landlords. Yes, they are the most uh, visible, particularly on the high street, but they're actually a very small part of the property portfolios we invest in. Most of our investments are in elements such as office blocks and industrial. And the, the flip side to ultimately the death of the high street, which I think is more of a strategic long-term shift, the flip side of that is the rise of online retail, particularly, um, well, I, I probably shouldn't mention names, but we all know all of our favorite online, online retailers And actually, if you look in the grand scheme, as the high street fails, all of those sites that used to be low value, no one really wanted, say a brownfield site next to a motorway, sounds quite unattractive. Well, actually, if you're an online retailer and what you need is to be able to have big spaces, huge distribution centers, and get these things out quickly through vehicles or lorries and vans on the road, then those brownfield sites are very attractive. We're seeing a lot of shift from... uh, high street retail to these online distributors. So there is attraction there. Uh, I think a lot of people worry about Brexit. Obviously, that will change some of the dynamic. But recall that on a trade-weighted basis, sterling is between 10 and 15% cheaper than it was. So just as some people, and particularly investors in fixed assets, might worry, why would I put money into the UK if it's set to leave the world's largest largest trading block, there's going to be other long-term investors saying, well, actually, this could be a chance to invest. Everything is now cheaper, particularly if you're a a dollar buyer. And maybe on a long-term basis, if you're looking to change your business model, then I think there could be attraction there as well. So not overwhelmingly positive, but I think too many people are overwhelmingly negative on property. So elements to think of within that. Uh, There are the other two asset classes, or asset class inverted commas, you mentioned absolute return and gold. Absolute return, we could probably do a whole podcast on uh, on our own, drilling into a huge amount of detail. The, the, the point I would make on that, absolute return is not an asset class. They are a set of strategies. And whilst we are relatively positive on the funds that we use, that is not to say I think all absolute return funds are good. What you are reliant on is the manager's ability to add value. If you think of the equivalent of an equity fund, what return you get from manager X is both the return of the broad market, so that's called your beta, so the broad market return plus any skill they can add over and above. With an absolute return fund, all you're getting really 
is that manager skill. It's purely alpha added and not all managers are equal. So I think I wouldn't say we like absolute return funds in aggregate. What I do think is the managers that we use combined in the way that we use them um, can and do add value. Also worth highlighting, absolute return is a target, certainly not a guarantee or a promise. It is what they're trying to achieve, not necessarily what they definitely will. Um, and then finally on gold, gold is a very difficult asset class, I think, to get too enthusiastic or involved with. Certainly, I mean, I, I struggle. I'm not a natural gold bug. Gold lacks any intrinsic value. In fact, gold has many similarities from a purely conceptual level with Bitcoin, insofar as there is very little intrinsic value. What we can say about gold, it has low correlation and investors tend to flock to it when they're looking for a store of wealth. It is not in any way, shape or form, a safe haven asset. It can be very volatile. But when there is fear in the market, um, what we particularly saw when QE was going on, any time that investors worry that a currency is going to be debased, holding this asset, it's very difficult to produce a lot more of it, unlike printing money, than it does have relative attraction, particularly if you're concerned elements such as deflation. So it does have a role. It is lowly correlated it does tend to lack intrinsic value. Uh, I think one of the few points you could loosely point to, gold is now trading relatively comfortably above $1,200 uh, yes, $1, an ounce. If you look at the marginal cost of production, so that's the, the cost of producing an extra unit of gold, that is broadly considered to be around the 1200 mark. So whilst it does lack intrinsic value in and of itself, and that figure can move around a lot, we do often consider 1200 to be a level below which it probably looks attractive. And the higher you get, a lot of that is probably realised. But it, it is, as I said, a difficult asset class to analyse in detail. That's great. I think, you know, as you, as you touched on before, in, in days gone by, we would have looked at to fixed income as a sort of negative correlated to equities. But in, in lights of sort of low interest rate environments, these other assets have become more prevalent and uh, and people tend to understand less about about where the returns are, are generated from in, in those respects. I think perhaps for, for our listeners, it's probably a good time to do a bit of a, a roundup in terms of what we've looked at and, um, and where you think things might go uh, in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, the, the theme of day really has been politics. And I think that makes sense given the everything that's going on. And really the message from us is when you look at politics, first and foremost, think about the fundamentals. Is this going to change the tax base? Is this going to change earnings? Is this going to change interest rates? And really, unless it's significantly impacting those, it probably doesn't have too much of an effect. The currency, and I know we touched on this last month, currency is really the key responder to short-term changes. In terms of Brexit, we're now shifting to a slightly softer outlook. Who knows what that outlook will be in a month's time? Who knows what it will be in, in sort of days or weeks? But it is focusing on the fundamental, unless there's a significant change, any volatility driven by politics can ultimately be an attractive entry opportunity. Look at the sentiment, try and take advantage of it. And then also look for any evidence it's becoming entrenched and perhaps leading to a longer slowdown. And most importantly, as we look globally, populism, anytime you see the fiscal taps being opened. So if a government says we're going to cut taxes and build lots of infrastructure, that can be a boost in the short term. It does cause problems in the longer term. So ultimately, politics at best can just redistribute when those returns are, which is obviously what we focus on when we look at our strategic and tactical allocation. 
Thank you, Ben, for your comments. We will be back again next month with a new episode. If you have any feedback, questions or comments, please send us an email at podcast at tilney.co.uk. Thanks for listening.